Support comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about kidney cancer with Dr. Brian Shuck. Dr. Shuck is an assistant professor of urology and of biomedical imaging at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background and your training. Okay, well, I am a urologist focused on urologic oncology, and I spent uh, six years at UCLA as a urology resident, which is one of the premier kidney cancer programs, followed by a three-year urologic oncology fellowship at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and I've been here at Yale now for five years focused on uh, building a uh, kidney cancer clinical and research practice. I see, and so... You're, you trained as a urologist and then specialized in, in cancer-related things. Correct. And, and amongst all the urology stuff, you've particularly focused just on the kidneys. Correct. About 90% of my practice is dedicated to evaluating patients with kidney tumors. I see. So, so how common are kidney tumors? So the uh, lifetime incidence of kidney cancer uh, differs by, you know, the patient characteristics. But in a man, the lifetime risk is 2%. And in a woman, the lifetime risk is 1%. And that equates to about 60,000 new cancer diagnoses a year in the United States. And, and um, there, you know, there are a lot of times that we find things on CAT scans, kind of things in the kidneys that may or may not be cancer, I guess. So um, what, what should people know about that? So the incidence of kidney cancer has risen about fourfold since 1970, and that is largely due to what we call incidental or accidental detection. Many of these tumors were not destined to need treatment. They were probably going to be uh, in the patient and found maybe at autopsy or just never detected. So we have found that uh, there is a higher incidence of kidney cancer, but largely due to what we call a uh, incidental or basically um, a detection bias, by us imaging for other reasons, uh, finding the tumors which were never destined to cause any trouble. So what do you, what, what's the approach to dealing with these incidental <clears throat> kidney findings on a CAT scan that was done for another reason. So we know the mortality of kidney cancer has not changed. The number of patients dying each year has not changed. And if we were to treat four times more kidney cancers than previously, you'd expect that we would start making a dent in the number of patients dying each year by treating ones destined to cause trouble. So when we find a patient with a small kidney tumor, we are trying to assess whether this patient really needs to be treated. We know that we over-treat a large amount of patients, and this term over-treatment is really treating a tumor which was not destined to cause any trouble during a one's lifetime. And this over-treatment and over-detection is common in the field of prostate cancer where there's a big 
controversy of should we diagnose with PSA testing. And in kidney cancer, we're about 10 to 20 years behind where uh, we are in other fields. And we have to try to convince older patients who have other comorbidities that the incidental tumor, which is small, is probably not causing them any trouble now and may not cause them any trouble in the future. So... Right. So a lot of times we don't know what to do about small tumors, if they're going to become bad or not. So what what do you do when you find something like this in, in a, on a CAT scan for an asymptomatic patient? So we try to individualize treatment for each patient. Uh, unfortunately, the current diagnostic ability of imaging or biopsy cannot completely rule out a patient having uh, a benign or malignant tumor. So classically, we haven't done things like biopsy, but we're moving in that direction with new molecular testing. But we try to individualize care for an older patient with a small tumor. We try to offer them active surveillance, close monitoring, and then if it changes, then offer intervention. We're still at an area where if we have a younger individual, we do generally offer treatment as the patient may have many years of life ahead of them, and we know when small tumors are left alone, they do have a slow period, a, a slow rate of growth. So you're going to watch a lot of people. So you don't always have to go straight to surgery. Correct. The, the term we like to use is active surveillance or active monitoring. So in an older patient who has competing risks of death, uh, we consider active monitoring very safe, effective strategy where the patients are monitored with uh, imaging every four to six months, and we can get a, a, a basically a, um, a feel for the tumor's aggressiveness. If the tumor is barely changing, which happens with most tumors, we feel more confident that uh, observation is going to be very safe. If the tumor is having a rapid change over a short period of time, then we have to change our approach and do recommend active treatment rather than active monitoring. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. So, who is that? You were talking about familial kidney cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So we have about 18 known genes, which when altered and in a patient's um, uh, genetic makeup can predispose them to inheriting a higher risk of kidney cancer than the general population. Uh, these genes are able to be tested for, similar to the more common genes, which we are very familiar with, like breast cancer genes, BRCA1 or BRCA2, or, or the colorectal cancer genes, uh, the what we call the Lynch syndrome family. Uh, there are similar genes like that in kidney cancer, which can just greatly increase the risk of developing uh, a tumor in the kidney and have other manifestations depending on the type uh, of, of syndrome. So if I send off my test cheek swab to 23andMe, am I going to, like, be told I'm supposed to get kidney cancer then? Uh, I'm not sure the current makeup of 23andMe, but the direct-to-consumer genetic testing is not uh, things that we generally recommend because it's very difficult to counsel a patient appropriately. Someone may have a higher risk of developing a kidney cancer, uh, but that uh, needs to be discussed in the context of a meeting with the genetic counselor. 
So none of those genes mean you've got a 100% chance. Of We're that. not really sure what they necessarily te are testing for, uh, so I can't really give you any uh, strong recommendations. Okay. But I mean among the 18 that you were talking about. Yeah, among the genes which we test for in many of our panels, uh, we have patients who uh, need to be followed very closely for the development of kidney tumors and other manifestations, and they have specific management plans how we would observe someone for their cancer risk. So who knows if they should get these, uh, you know, see you in your clinic and get that kind of testing done? So we have recommendations for who with kidney cancer should get evaluated, and those include someone with an early age of onset of a kidney tumor. We recommend age 45 or less based on my research uh, while I was at the NIH. Someone with bilateral kidney tumors, one in each kidney, or what we call multifocality, multiple kidney tumors, or there are some associations with some skin manifestations um, uh, or other types of cancers like melanoma uh, or other, other ones depending on the syndrome. Now, if you have a couple first-degree relatives with kidney cancer, uh, that also raises risk as well. And if they had testing and they tested positive for a genetic change, you uh, as a family member would want to be tested because you could be at risk of developing a higher uh, predisposition. So if your parent or a brother or sister had kidney cancer, especially early onset at a young age, then that's something people might want to look into. So we would love to have the affected individual, the individual who has the cancer to be tested, because if they were to test negative, for any of these strong genes, your your risk, if you were their child or a first degree relative, would be much lower. But we have patients who come in and they're anxious and we map out a family tree and we try to understand whether they should be tested as well. And you do this in your clinic? So we have a cancer genetics and prevention program through SMILO, and I direct the GU cancer program, where we see patients with hereditary or early onset uh, cancers of the kidney, the prostate, or upper urinary tract as well. And they meet with me and a genetic counselor, and we determine whether patients should be tested. Um, and if they do test positive, we try to come up with a comprehensive plan of action to get other specialists involved. I see. And um, the people who have these risks for kidney cancers, does that mean that they just would then land up having additional um, CAT scans, whatever testing? So we, for patients who have high risk, we've generally switched over to using MRIs, which uh, are offer very low risk of, of complications. The MRI has no radiation exposure. The contrast is very safe. And we would periodically screen individuals uh, with abdominal MRI scans for the kidneys. And depending on the condition, it could be every year to maybe every three years. Uh, the conditions that have manifestations outside the kidney, uh, we try to offer other types of surveillance. So someone who may have a risk of melanoma, we'd get them to see one of our melanoma dermatologists at SMILO. Or if someone had a higher risk of, let's say, pancreatic cancer, we'd get them plugged in with screening uh, with the clinician focused on that. Uh, okay. And so, uh, you know, there's still a controversy about how useful mammography is for screening for breast cancer. Uh, so we don't have a lot of outcome data, I take it, on this approach. Uh, we don't have population-based outcome data because these conditions are pretty rare. 
um, or thought to be rare, but I would give, we have many anecdotal experiences of patients with a condition which is highly lethal when disseminated, that if we detect early, we have cured by doing screening. So yes, there are no population-based uh, recommendations uh, that are uh, based on randomizing patients to screening versus no screening, but in all the hereditary cancer groups that do this type of screening, we have plenty of patients who were likely cured with uh, early intervention. And, um, uh, and how do you track the cancer in, in these families if you know somebody has uh, one of the genetic abnormalities that predisposes to kidney cancer? So we try to have a comprehensive pedigree or family uh, history. Uh, and then if we find someone who's affected, we try to reach out to their other family members who may be at risk. And it's called Cascade uh, testing, where you know who's at risk, and then you could offer testing to those individuals. And if they were to test positive for having the same inherited risk, not that they inherit cancer, they inherit a higher risk, then we try to get them plugged into a comprehensive screening program as well. And, I mean, do you remove kidneys preventatively? So unlike breast cancer or uh, with ovarian cancer risk, where someone who's had their child uh, past their childbearing age may, may no longer need their ovaries, kidneys are vital organs. We cannot remove kidneys uh, unnecessarily. Loss of kidney function does predispose to things like chronic kidney disease. So we obviously uh, would not want to do that, but we follow patients. Uh, if we find tumors early, they could be treated with things like partial nephrectomy to preserve their kidney function function and eliminate their risk of cancer dissemination. And how, how do people who um, may be concerned about their familial risk of, of kidney cancer, how would they get an appointment? How would they reach you? So we have uh, a large clinic, and we see patients twice a month with a genetic counselor myself, and it's an easy number, uh, 203-200-4-DNA, which is the main Smilo Cancer Genetics program. And we basically, before someone comes in, we give them a detailed family questionnaire to try to map out their family history. So when they meet with one of Smilo's cancer genetic counselors and me, we try to uh, get a, uh, a really good um, um basically picture of what their family is like. Uh, so they can call 203-200-4-DNA and say, I'm concerned about my family history of kidney cancer. Correct. Or for that matter, for another cancer. Correct. And a genetic counselor will be they'll get arranged to see a, a genetic counselor. There. Correct. We'll have a, someone taking intake, and then they'll give them the appropriate uh, pre- visit uh, questions so they can fill out and make the appointment even more valuable. Well, thank you very much for that discussion on, on inherited kidney cancer. We're going to take a short break now for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about kidney cancer with Dr. Brian Shuck. Support comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. 
Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service clinical practice guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter and my guest, Dr. Brian Chuck, and we're talking about kidney cancer. So, uh, Brian, we talked a little bit uh, in the first part of the program about uh, familial kidney cancer. Uh, that's pretty rare. You said the incidence of kidney cancer in the United States is about 2%, or uh, lifetime risk lifetime is, risk is yeah. 2%. And what percent of all cancer is kidney cancer? Uh, well, kidney cancer is one of the top 10 malignancies. Um, so probably 5% to le uh, or less of overall cancer is related to kidney. And of those that are kidney, maybe only 2 to 5% are, are hereditary. So 2 to 5% of the 5%. So Correct. It's, it's still a low number. So there's a lot of sporadic kidney cancer out there. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, active surveillance as a strategy when these are discovered. So um, what, what is the approach today for people who are diagnosed with kidney cancer? How do you treat these people? So patients with early stage kidney cancer, what we call maybe stage one, a localized kidney tumor, a lot of times we try to discuss treatment uh, based on uh, the patient's risks. And they say, is all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So we don't try to do that one-size-fit-all approach here, where if you see a tumor, you automatically cut it out. We have done active surveillance. We're very... Uh, um, um, we promote that modality for older individuals. We also offer uh, needle ablation for small kidney tumors that patients may not be good candidates for general anesthesia. We can stick a needle into the tumor uh, and try to burn it or freeze it, and it's also effective local treatment strategies. And finally, we do a lot of partial nephrectomies where we would cut the tumor out and then spare the remaining kidney. Um, we rarely uh, take out a whole kidney nowadays for small tumors. Uh, so that's good to know that even if you have kidney cancer, only part of your kidney would be removed. Correct. We focus on oncologic uh, cure. And second, we focus on uh, organ preservation. And third, we try to avoid a large scar. Uh -huh. And in that priority. Okay. Uh, and, um, and so is there a particular size or is the CAT scan appearance or whatever that's going to help you decide on if people need surgery or not? Again, we're talking about a kidney that is just localized to a tumor that's just localized to the kidney. So when tumors are less than two centimeters, the new guidelines by the American Urologic Association does offer surveillance as a good strategy uh, for initial management. But for tumors that are larger, we start to talk about active interventions. And again, uh, the ablation, the needle procedures, where we do it in conjunction with radiology. Generally, we do those for tumors two to four centimeters. When we get to a larger size tumor, four or greater, when tumors are localized, we still can talk about partial nephrectomy. But as the tumor gets to be very large, seven centimeters or greater, we generally have to take the whole kidney out, unfortunately. 
So five centimeters is like two inches. So if it's a, if it's less than two inches, you know, one and three quarters, then you're in that category where you're kind of maybe watching, maybe operating or ablating. Um, you have a trial, I understand, where you are prospectively collecting information on people who aren't getting surgery. Yeah, we're trying to figure out which small tumors are ones that are destined to not change in size and which ones are destined to grow and need treatment. And understanding that would be very vital for patients who are newly diagnosed with a renal tumor where we would have a biomarker or a test which could tell a patient or reassure them your tumor is not destined to grow. And currently we don't have that information available, leading most patients who have anxiety to want to go under the knife and have treatment where uh, many of them, the tumors may not actually be destined to cause any harm. So what what is your trial doing? It is offering patients uh, active surveillance or close monitoring. We do some novel imaging. We do some genetic evaluation of their tumor biopsy, and then we closely characterize them with a very, very close follow-up. And if the tumor reaches a certain size threshold where we're uncomfortable or the patient is uncomfortable, then we have a quick trigger to offer treatment. Usually when you say uncomfortable, it's not like they're physically uncomfortable. It's they're just getting anxiety. Yeah, These yeah. tumors rarely cause any symptoms, and it's just patient knowing that they have a tumor in their body and knowing that it is slightly growing makes patients often have anxiety and want to elect treatment. Right, right. And, and why is that, that people usually don't have pain or discomfort from these kidney tumors? Most of the small tumors, they are localized. The kidney is surrounded by a large area of fat deep in the body, and there's not really any nerve fibers there to cause any discomfort. When you even see patients with very large kidney tumors, and we're talking, you know, size of a grapefruit, a lot of times patients still may not have any discomfort. I see. And, and how do, other than the fact that somebody may have gotten a CAT scan for another reason, how do these patients usually come to medical attention? What is, what is it that they notice? So the classic triad prior to everyone getting scanned incidentally was a triad of having flank pain, having blood in the urine, and having the doctor feel or palpate a large abdominal mass. We see that would that, be pretty big. That would be very big. Very big, yeah. We see that less than 10% of the time nowadays. But if there's blood in the urine, that's people will notice that usually. Correct. Blood it. in the urine should not be ignored. It could be something very minor, but it could also be representative of a cancer which needs further urologic attention. Okay. So that's, uh, I think we want to emphasize that's a, a sign, uh, a medical finding that, that patients might notice, and that really requires um, them to see a physician because there are a lot of things that are benign or things that can be treated very early, but really it's not a good thing to ignore. Correct. Okay. So tell us a little bit about non-surgical treatment options. So when we have a patient who has advanced disease, we have multiple agents that are available systemically. And there have been a plethora of systemic therapy options in our field when patients who may have had their kidney removed or they present with metastatic disease. Uh, we have now 
11 FDA-approved drugs for the treatment of advanced disease, whereas prior to 2005, we only had one. That's a lot of progress in the last decade. Definitely. It's one of the most exciting fields of cancer because we have made such progress in the past decade that we have so many agents and our patients are living longer than ever before. And, and so there's, um, for people at high risk after surgery, there's some treatment that can help. So unfortunately, we're left without a magic medication which will be given to reduce the risk of death. It's an area of our field where you take someone's kidney tumor out and you believe you've eradicated all the disease. And that therapy would be called adjuvant therapy. We have no effective adjuvant therapies which change someone's overall survival. We have many trials in this area and most have failed. We have one drug which may slightly reduce time to recurrence. It's a pill called Sutent. It's an oral pill, but the pill has side effects. And even though the FDA did approve it last month, most clinicians feel that without changing someone's overall survival, we still have effect, ineffective therapy to lower the risk of recurrence. But that doesn't mean we're not going to stop trying. And we have two trials open at Smilo Cancer Center, which um, um, are multidisciplinary trials uh, working uh, with our medical oncologist and our urologic oncologist, trying to employ some of these new novel agents, which we would call targeted immunotherapy, to lower the risk of recurrence by harnessing one's immune system to attack maybe residual cancer cells, and the goal being improving survival. So uh, that's a very exciting field today, um, uh, immunotherapy and uh, harnessing the patient's immune system to kill the cancer. What, what is happening with that in kidney cancer? So kidney cancer was one of the rare cancers with melanoma that traditionally responded to immune therapy. And the first FDA-approved drug for kidney cancer in 1991 was IL-2, interleukin-2. And since that time, the field, since 2005 on, focused on these targeted drugs, focusing on the tumor biology. But Kidney cancer now has had a uh, immunotherapy revolution where we're moving back to try to do first-line immune therapy for the treatment of metastatic kidney cancer. With the drug Optivo or Nivolumab, that is now FDA approved for kidney cancer. We have now had positive data for other immune medications, one called Yervoy or Ipilimumab, which should be approved for the treatment of kidney cancer as there is positive trial when used in combination with uh, Nevo, nivolumab, that the treatment of upfront immune therapy probably is the current standard of care for patients with advanced disease. So uh, some of the treatments we've talked about are drugs like uh, Sutent or Sunitinib, that's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, which kind of turns off the cell's growth signals. And then now you're talking about immunotherapy drugs that actually um, allow the patient's immune system to work better. Uh, and uh, so those are under active investigation at this time. So the both class of drugs are approved. And we do have a lot of novel trials open at Yale where we combine both classes of drugs together that my collaborators, Dr. Mario Snow and Harriet Kluger, are working on, where we try to combine both classes of agents. And it seems that 
together they may be synergistic, that they can have an added effect to improve patient outcome. Still under investigation, but we feel the f that our field will move forward with some of these novel combinations. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, so you were saying that today, before, people used to get um, interleukin-2 perhaps if they had uh, a metastatic kidney cancer, one that had come back and spread, or possibly a, one of these drugs like uh, Sutent, but now you're giving immunotherapy mainly. So our, our program uh, is very focused on giving upfront immune medication, and we feel that these immune drugs offer patients a greater chance for a more what we call durable response, meaning a response that will not just be short-lived, but one which will offer patients a long period of disease remission. And our goal in our field is providing patients with the opportunity for a complete response. That has been seen in the prior era with IL-2. With the new immune medications, we have seen some patients having complete remission. We're hoping it's for long periods of time, but only time will tell. So um, uh, some of the trials going on, going on now are kind of comparing things like standard immunotherapy, nivolumab, to other combinations. Um, why should um, patients be interested in, in participating in these clinical trials? So until we can prevent cancer from occurring and we can cure everyone, we know there's work to be done. So I would tell any patient who has cancer, a clinical trial is investigating new or novel therapies which are believed or hope based on a lot of data from the laboratory to be better than what's the existing standard of care. So many of the trials we have here are combining agents which can be given by any doctor with an additional medication which has strong rationale to be used in combination and we're hoping to improve outcome. And we're not going to rest until all our patients can be treated effectively with medication which will eradicate the disease and we're far from that and we hope that in the future we'll have the ability to provide those types of outcomes to greater patients. Dr. Brian Shuck is an assistant professor of urology and of biomedical imaging at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer right here on WNPR.